The following sermon was preached at Veritas Church in Magnolia, Texas. For more information about Veritas Church, please visit veritasdisciple.org. It'll be Nehemiah chapter 6. I'll start with a true story. A guy in my office was in Napa, California, not too long ago, talking about three, four weeks. And he was out at a little past midnight. I don't know, social life or something. And he saw in another car a man and a woman, and the man got out of the car and went around to the other side and grabbed the lady, pulled her out of the car, and let's just say started treating her very violently, uh, and, and his intent was murder. And... The gentleman, who's the kind of the hero of the story, yelled at the perpetrator, and he said, hey, and he started trying to tell him to stop. They caught the bad guy later, and he was wanted already for murder. So here's this crime going down, and my buddy goes over there and says, and gets between the woman and the would-be murderer, and says, you better, you better quit this. Someone else drives by, and the bad guy says to those people, you keep on driving, or I will kill you. They drive off. And my buddy's standing there, can't really grab his cell phone, he's defending this woman, and the perpetrator says he has a gun in the car, and my friend is thinking, what am I going to do if that guy makes a move towards the car? How am I going to take him out before he gets to his gun? The guy said, listen, this isn't going to end well for you or me. You need to leave. Finally, the, the guy was frustrated and left. I don't know why. I mean, this, this friend of mine is about yay tall. Um, he has a nice uh, French accent or something. So maybe that kind of helped, you know, mess with the guy's head or something. You know how those Frenchmen are known for being so dangerous. Anyway, this guy, from standing up to the bad guy, who was a real, I mean, he looked like something just drug out of the dungeon. Um, he stood his ground and saved this woman's life, no doubt about it. What would you do in a situation like that? Would you inject yourself into a clearly dangerous situation in order to save someone's life? I hope we all would. Except for like Isaiah and Seth and, you know, some of these younger people. Man, a hero arises and is manifested when there's a combination of things. One is the character of the person and the other is the opportunity to show it. And that was certainly one of those moments. What would you do in that kind of situation? You know, there have been many opportunities in history for Jewish people to be heroic. For some reason, a lot of people just really can't stand the Jews. I think I know what the reason is. That is because the God of the Jews is the only true God. And people are angry uh, with God. People reject God, so they are harsh against the Jews. Nehemiah was one such hero, and his character met with the opportunity. With him, the enemies were Sanballat, Tobiah, actually many more enemies than you might realize when you first take a look at this book. What kind of a fool would someone have to be to be like Sanballat and Tobiah? They, 
simply find out that the Jews are going to rebuild the wall, and just from that, they're really irritated. It says in chapter 2, that when Nehemiah arrived, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They just didn't like the Jews. In chapter 4, it says, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, and in your English Bible, it says, greatly enraged. Now, Billy brought something up about these guys that's really stuck with me, that they're kind of like the character Biff from Back to the Future. He's like always showing up and causing problems. He's like the, the, uh, the key antagonist. And Billy also raised one of the most key theological considerations that I, I hope that you guys have been grappling with, and that is who would name their son Sanballat? Um, these enemies are very ineffective. I, I think as you read the book of Nehemiah, they're, they're very ineffective. They don't really accomplish much of anything. Uh, you kind of think they could, you know, come over and knock the wall down or something while, you know, come over at night, and uh, maybe they, they could actually harm Nehemiah, and they don't. They don't succeed. Now, by the way, the wall was probably like 15 to 20 feet thick, so we're, we're not talking about a very small, it's not like this little cobblestone, you know, country decorative thing. It's like, you know, a very, uh, very hefty, strong deal, but what could the enemies do really Anyway, Nehemiah's enemies have threatened to attack before, so everyone started working on the wall while holding a sword or something in the other hand. It's pretty cool. And I think what it is is that the enemies just simply weren't very powerful compared to the Israelites. I mean, there were uh, hundreds or thousands of Israelites there, not hundreds of thousands. I mean, not, not hundred thousands. Anyway, you know what I mean. I got to go back to math class. Um, I think the relative power of the Jews was strong relative to the enemies, actually. But there were, they were still under this threat, and the, the, uh, the natives of the land uh, did have some logistical advantages over the Israelites, but they don't wind up uh, posing any real credible threat. Well, it's credible, but it's not successful. They cannot overpower the people. They can't attack or scare the people to stop them from working. They still want to stop this project of the wall. And uh, it's almost completed, actually. And um, since they can't do anything against the people so far, they decide that they're going to target the leader. And I think a leader of an important movement is always going to be a target for people who oppose that movement any leader. So they tried to do these things. They tried to isolate Nehemiah. They tried to intimidate Nehemiah. They tried to frighten and scare him. They tried to distract Nehemiah. They tried to slander him, defaming him, and trying to bring shame upon him. In response, Nehemiah used a number of techniques or things that he used. I've got nine things here. One is saying no. That could be a very good strategy. Uh, one is focusing on the work at hand. Someone said an acronym for FOCUS is follow one course until successful. FOCUS, follow one course until successful. He utilized persistence. He certainly had that. He used, at one point, a very strong denial. Not quite the same as just saying no. He was saying, you are wrong in what you're saying. He had good, accurate perception of his enemies, their motives, and their tactics. He used prayer, a prayer for strength. He used a proper self-opinion. At once, he used a high self-opinion and a low self-opinion. In two sentences, back to back, you'll see that. He used a prayer of imprecation, which is kind of like saying, God, go get these people. Go bust them. Go hurt them. So we're going to go through the passage, kind of a long summary of the passage here. And uh, feel free to look along in your Bibles. It says, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time... I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, 
come and let us meet together at Hakifirim in the plain of Ono. I find these enemies are a little bit like a swarm of mosquitoes when you're trying to have a picnic. They're buzzing around. They can hurt you a little bit. They try to suck your blood. And they, you know, as mosquitoes do, they always try to get you to meet with them in the plains of Ono. Uh, the plains of Ono was said to be kind of a nice place. I think it'd be kind of like if the, my enemies said, hey, Jay, let's go meet in San Antonio and we'll go to the Riverwalk. You know, we'll get you a nice hotel room. We'll go to some Mexican restaurants. We know how you like quesadillas. You know, let's do that. And then I would say, I really shouldn't join you. Pardon me, but I can't come. And that's basically what Nehemiah did. The plain of Ono was maybe like 20 miles from Jerusalem, so not a small journey in those days, and their cars weren't nearly as fast as ours. I really wish that I could say Ono with an authentic Hebrew accent. Instead, I'm going to have to say it with my American accent. Oh, no. (laughs) That's exactly what Nehemiah said. He refused to meet with these people, and they kept sending him messages. He, here's where he states his accurate perception of their intentions. He said they intended to do me harm. And I would ask, how does he know this at that point? How did he know? Well, I guess that's just their character. It says, I sent messengers back to them saying, and I love this line, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. That's very important. He says, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He says, they sent to me four times in this way. This is verse 4. They sent me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. And that's what would happen when a new king was installed. They would have different nobles and dignitaries all proclaiming, and they would make this proclamation in the land. There is a king in Judah, and the people would rally. Some of the people would celebrate. Some of the people would go into hiding. And this is what they're being they're accusing Nehemiah of doing. And they say, and now the king will hear of these reports. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure the king will hear about these reports if you keep spreading them all around and sending open letters like this. They sent him in an unsealed letter. I assume that means that other people could have accessed it and the, the secret information in this letter could have been spread about. Someone referred to Sanballat in one of the commentaries as the bad Samaritan, which I think is pretty hilarious uh, as kind of a little nickname or a little insult. I used it last night. Uh, Zach and his friends were kind of messing with me, and I said, you're a bad Samaritan. And I, so I think that'll kind of catch on, you know. Uh, but Tobiah was the bad Samaritan. Not the good Samaritan. He was a bad Samaritan. And he, so, so they're making this, uh, this challenge to Nehemiah, and, and what's he going to do? Now, this is the same Nehemiah who in a previous chapter... Chapter 4, verse 14, has kind of a famous, important uh, set of verses there where it says, uh, at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. This is a previous time, okay? And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. A real rallying cry. And once a leader says something like that to the people, he's kind of got to stand up and be brave when the time comes. There's another point where he says, I took counsel with myself. He made a decision about what he was going to do so that he could then stay the course. And, and so then the people say to him, now come and let us take counsel together. Like, look, let's solve this problem. Let's work together. I know you're trying to do this thing where you become king in Jerusalem, but let's talk about it. And I think it's kind of a believable charge that they levied against him. Other than the fact that Nehemiah had a pretty high trust factor with Artaxerxes, the king of the, the whole known world. 
um, the Jews did have the expectancy of a Messiah. And they did want to build the wall. And they did want to throw off the pagan leadership. And so they also had, in their history, they had Moses, who was a deliverer. They had Joshua, who was a conqueror. They had Samson, who was a judge and deliverer. Jephthah, same. Gideon, same. Samuel, same. King David, who was a, a great military winner, and uh, he battled against the enemies of Israel. All of these were deliverers of Israel. Another word would be Savior or Messiah. They, uh, they had a lot of great military victories. Moses had predicted there was another Messiah coming or another uh, deliverer coming, another prophet coming. They all knew that they should be expecting this, right? Um, Moses wrote about it more than once. They had the reign of Solomon as a model where they were so rich and successful and powerful and had uh, peace from their enemies. And the reign of Solomon, though, didn't last long enough, and they wanted it back, and they wanted it better. They were expecting another Savior, plus you have Nehemiah sort of filling the role. I mean, he had been born in Bethlehem, right? Just kidding. Uh, what Jew there wouldn't have wanted to have their own king and have their own autonomy and throw off the pagan rulers? And clearly the top candidate would have been Nehemiah. So the, the charge had a possible ring of truth to it. They made this accusation, and here's Nehemiah's response back. Verse 8. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. So there's a good zinger by Nehemiah. And then he gives another summary statement about their motives. Verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. He prays. Verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, what does it mean to you that Nehemiah did not meet with the other people when they requested it, but he did meet with Shemaiah. What does that tell us? That he did not trust Sanballat and Tobiah, but with Shemaiah, what? Yeah, he, he must have trusted him. And then it makes the wounds from Shemaiah worse because you expect bad behavior from people like Sanballat who are that twisted. But then when you find out that someone who's supposed to be on your side is also twisted and, and opposed to you, so Nehemiah answers him, and he says, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He's saying, in more than one way, this is not fitting. And then he gives another summary of the insidious plot that's what's really going on. He says, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me. Okay, so it's a prophecy. What this guy, uh, Mishaiah, was saying. Is that his name? Shemaiah. <laughs> what Shemaiah was saying came like a prophecy. Hey, I've found out that they're coming to kill you by night. And so Nehemiah is aware that he had been hired by Tobiah and Sanballat. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. How did Nehemiah know this? Okay, listen to how it goes. He went into the house of Shemaiah, who was confined to his home, and he said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's go in there. Let's close the doors. They're coming to kill you, so we need to go in there. They're coming to kill you by night. But Nehemiah said, well, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. 
how did Nehemiah know that that's what they were doing? That that's where it came from? Did he see a little note on the table that said, hey, Shemaiah, uh, we'll pay you 50 shekels if you pronounce a false prophecy against Nehemiah? I mean, I don't think so. And, and to turn serious for just for a moment, as far as I can tell, Nehemiah had a sort of a word of knowledge right here. Uh, which is, I, when I say that, I mean a supernatural gift of being able to perceive something without hearing of it by a typical means. At any rate, he perceived what was really going on. Very cool. And then a prayer of Nehemiah that's a pretty interesting prayer where he says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadia, which we haven't heard about, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So there's a gang of people. There's prophets. We, we know about Sanballat, Tobiah, Biff, uh, Noadia, and those guys, but there's more. And Nehemiah talks about God remembering them. And this is, this is not the nice kind of remembering. It's like remember to, to get them. So to repeat, that's, that's the passage for today, okay? To repeat, they tried to isolate him, slander him, distract, frighten, and defame. They're shaming him. And a key part of this book is enemies on the outside of the community. Another key part is enemies that are infiltrating the community. And so they need this wall. And without the wall, there's a shame. And so Nehemiah is, is correcting that. And so here's, again, the rundown of the things that he used. He said, no. Come and meet with us in the river walk of San Antonio, the plain of Ono. And he said, no. There's a book, and the basic title of the book is The Power of No. Anybody heard of it? Here's the rest of the title. The power of no, because one little word can bring health, abundance, and happiness. I think that sounds like it's going a little too far, but I would agree that saying no is so important. Your, the course of your life is changed sometimes by your yeses and your noes. You say, yeah, I'll do that. And next thing you know, you're doing something, and you, you're, you're into it, and you're like, I don't know if I should do this, but I said I was going to do it. And so the course of your life can be changed including it can be changed for the better by saying no. And we need to learn to set our boundaries and just simply say no to things. And godliness teaches us to say no to things. So uh, he did that. We need to do that at times. He used focusing on the work. It's concentrating on something. And by definition, when you concentrate on something, you're pushing aside the focus on other things that would compete. You're focusing on a limited area you're choosing not to focus on these other things. And so he says, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. That's his focus. He's got this great work. And he knows it. And I would say that that's something that all of us, this is like a really helpful hint. You have to know the work that you're going to focus on, and you have to believe the work is a great work. Do you struggle with motivation? Here's the key. You have to know why you want to do the things that you're doing. And if you don't have a rationale for doing the things, then maybe you need to re-examine and get those things off your schedule. But you need to frame your work as a great work. Or else, why are you doing it? Building the kingdom. I'm going to go ahead and call that a great work. Nehemiah knows that he's doing a great work, so he uses that line. It's fantastic. Use that in your life. I can't do this because I'm doing this instead. I really feel passionate about this. I have to do this. I've committed to this. You have to encourage yourself accordingly. Nehemiah had persistence. He would not stop trying. He would not stop going in that direction. He would not give up, like Winston Churchill said. Don't give up. Don't give up. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. Not only would he focus, but he would keep that focus. Even when he was criticized and threatened, he would just keep working. Just keep going. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Uh, a quote from Chuck Swindoll. 
Part of the unwritten job requirements for every leader is the ability to handle criticism. Jamie, Billy, Matt, part of the job requirement for being an elder of a church is the ability to handle criticism. And Swindoll also said, if you never get criticized, chances are you're not getting anything done. We have to develop that character trait so that when people criticize, we take an honest look at the situation, take a deep breath, review our commitments, decide what's right, what is our great work, and stay that course no matter what. Nehemiah utilized a good, strong denial. They said, you're trying to rebel against Artaxerxes. He said, no, I'm not. And they said, okay, maybe you're not. He said, you're making it up out of your own mind. I really like that one too. You're just making it up. You're just coming up with this stuff. I wonder if Nehemiah took some comfort in knowing that he had been the king's cupbearer. The king sent him. I find it interesting that Nehemiah did not call back to Artaxerxes and call in any favors and say, hey, I'm having some real trouble with some of the area dignitaries. Could you tell them for me to quit it? Mom, Dad, Grayson's doing such and such. He just handled it himself. He didn't call in the big guns. He didn't ask for any military contingency. He didn't ask for any orders. He just handled it himself. Sort of interesting, considering he had such a high role there as the cupbearer of the king and had a great trust level. He told them, you're wrong about this. And sometimes that's what you need to say. You just need to put it out there. You're saying this, and I just want you to know you're wrong. It's very useful. kind of feels good to say it sometimes. <laughs> but be polite when you say it. As polite as you need to be, as harsh as you need to be. Nehemiah had the gift of having an accurate perception of his enemy's motives. And he, he knew what they were up to. He knew some of their tactics. He said they intended to do me harm. And having that perception of what is going on in life, it's, it's just simply a gift from God. And I pray that we all have that gift every time we need it. Uh, Sanballat was kind of like the devil. He wanted to tempt Nehemiah. Um, and, that, and that guy, uh, what's his name, Shemaiah? He, he wanted to get Nehemiah to go into the temple, so the devil's kind of doing these things. He, he tempts the person. If Nehemiah had gone into the temple, into the sanctuary, he would have been um, in the wrong place for his holiness level, his clearance level, and then he would have been subjected to proper accusation. So the devil tempts the person, and then turns around and accuses him for being guilty of doing the thing that he tempted him to do in the first place. And that's a lot like what's going on here with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was aware of it. And we need to be aware of the devil's schemes, the Bible teaches us. Nehemiah utilized a prayer for strength. He said, God, strengthen my hands. And Nehemiah was certainly a man of prayer. Now, the self-opinion thing. Isn't it interesting that he used both a high self-opinion and a humble self-opinion back-to-back. He said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. So here's the, the high self-opinion. Should such a man as I run away? I'm not that kind of person. That's not who I am. That's not my character. That's not my role. I'm not the kind of person who would run away. I'm not the kind of person who should run away. I'm also not the kind of person who should go into the sanctuary and live to tell about it. It's like he's saying, I'm too great of a man to run away, and I'm too sinful of a man to run into the sanctuary. You guys okay with this? It's not who I am to do this sin. Friends, do you know who you are in Christ? We are not gold-plated trash. We're more like tarnished silver because we've been renewed on the inside. We have the Holy Spirit. We are more like tarnished silver because we're, we're dirty and we can be cleansed. We're not, we're not, the dirt doesn't define us anymore. We're cleansed. We're considered saints. 
On one hand, you're too much of a sinner to think of yourselves as independent of God or better than other people. On the other hand, you're too much of a saint to take part in sin. You're too much a child of God to go in that direction. So, a proper self-opinion. Notice in, uh, I think it's Romans 12, when it says not, not to think of yourselves you know, higher than you should. It doesn't say think of yourselves as lower than, lower than you know. It says uh, think of yourselves with sober judgment. Of course, it does say consider others better than yourselves in Philippians 2. So, a clear self-opinion, accurate. You're a child of the king. Sinner, saved by nothing but grace through the blood of Christ, but a child of the king because you have been saved by grace. Nehemiah also utilized a prayer of imprecation. Imprecation is like calling down a curse on someone. How many of you would like to call down a curse on your enemies? Be very cautious utilizing that one. But this is what Nehemiah did and a lot of the psalmists did. Um, here's one from uh, Psalm 69, actually quoted by Jesus in the New Testament in part, not all this part, but listen to what it says. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And I looked for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. When the New Testament said, pray for your enemies, it's not what it was talking about. It was saying, pray good for your enemies, not pray that their eyes may be darkened that they cannot see. There's a country song that says, I'll pray for you. Pray that you have a flat tire. Pray that you have all these problems. And uh, I, don't, I don't recommend the song, you know. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. That sounds bad. Pour, <laughs> pour, <laughs> pour out your indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. That's not a nice, I'll pray for you. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. That's bad. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. That's bad. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Sounds like hell to me. How does this fit in with pray for your enemies? Some people have suggested that there's a New Testament upgrade. That in the past, you could call down curses on your enemies. But now we've got Jesus and we're nice. And we only pray blessings for our enemies. And I think the truth is something different. Um, there is a New Testament imprecation. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians 16, towards the end, I think it's verse 22, a few verses from the end of the book. Paul says, A curse be on anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. It's not just pray for their forgiveness. Now, is there pray for their forgiveness? Absolutely. So when do you know which one to do? I've heard some great Christian men say that they, they don't know anyone that they're ready to call down an imprecation, or that they're ready to pray an imprecation prayer. Um, I'm reminded of a section in Genesis where Abraham is going to go uh, take possession of the land and God has a real brief statement where he says the, the uh, sins of the Amorites uh, have, have not yet reached their full measure. Uh, if you want to go to Genesis 15, you can look at it. It's when Abram is in a deep sleep, the sun was going down. Uh, dreadful darkness fell upon him, and the Lord spoke to him. 
This is verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There are seasons to things. There was a time to not judge the Amorites, and then there was a time to judge the Amorites. There was a time when the people of the land lived there for, for a long time. The Canaanites lived there, building up wickedness, building up wickedness, and God didn't smack them right away. Adam and Eve, they sinned, and they could have been they were judged, but they could have been judged and sent to hell immediately, but it wasn't the thing. And then Cain killed Abel. Cain became the first murderer. He could have been executed immediately for this, but it wasn't the time. And how can we understand the times and the seasons that are appropriate for people to be judged or forgiven? Really, only God knows. Sometimes he might let you know. Apparently, in the Bible, he's let a lot of people in on when it was time for judgment. Um, there's another New Testament imprecation. It's a little bit different, and it's in Revelation. Uh, the martyrs. Now, where is this? Revelation 6. Oh, I want to find it, so give me a second. Ah, here we go. Revelation 6, 9 and following. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there was a, a time when these uh, persecutors and violent men were allowed to continue operating on the earth, killing the servants of the Lord. And, and in, in the scene that we have here, these witnesses who had been killed already cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? So that's the thing. There's a season there's a time that's coming for judgment. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a totally dignified and sanctified prayer. It's recorded in the Bible as a right prayer. How long until you avenge our blood? It's not, dear God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There's a time for that prayer. And then there's a time for your time is up. And you will now go to hell. You will now suffer the judgment. You will now endure the execution that is prepared for you. I was uh, walking in a library recently, and I saw a magazine, and it had a picture of a certain leader named Kim Jong-un. Anybody heard of him? Yeah. And... On this magazine, he's a leader of uh, North Korea. Classic definition of a fool. Can I get an amen? And, uh, and that magazine picture was kind of humorous. It had his, his hair look like a, uh, an explosion of a nuclear weapon. And it was talking about his, uh, his country's nuclear capabilities, that they, are, they have grown, at least at the time of this uh, publication. And he had this kind of this smirk on his face, and I just kind of thought, okay, there's a guy, you know, what's God going to do with this guy? And I was kind of thinking, how should I pray about this guy? And my first thought was, God, go get him. Remember when they were looking for, uh, who's that guy that they found in a hole? Well, Saddam Hussein was one of them. When they were, who's the other guy? See, Osama bin Laden, yeah, how quickly we forget. Well, both of those guys, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, we, we probably had these times when we were thinking, 
hey, let's find them. Let's get them. And then we, did anybody pray for mercy for Saddam Hussein? Come on, show me your hands. Did you pray for mercy for Saddam Hussein? Seriously, is there not one person in this room who prayed mercy for Saddam Hussein? I did. You did. That's what I mean. That's what I mean for his soul. Okay. How about, how about uh, Barack Obama? I mean, uh, how many of y'all prayed for mercy for Barack Obama? Good. How about Osama bin Laden? Who prayed for him to be forgiven for his sins? Thank you. Thank you. A couple of people. Yeah. I mean, maybe we're all about the imprecation. I don't know. That's not how I think of Veritas. But there's a time. You know, there's a time. And I, my, I remember having a prayer that, or having a thought that was sort of like, God, will you please, you know, bring him to repentance or bring him to the grave? Anybody had something like that? That's part of it. Kurt said, what about drive them to destruction so they'll see their foolishness and repent? Sometimes the best thing that can happen to someone is for them to hit rock bottom. Then sometimes it's just too late. So I would say be very careful when you use any uh, imprecation. Paul did say, a curse be upon anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. And they're cursed. And then sometimes the curse winds up bringing them to the end of themselves and they find salvation through Christ. So be very careful when you utilize any imprecation. You need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We always need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Not just, hey, the Bible says a curse be upon anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. Do you love the Lord Jesus? You don't? Okay, a curse be upon you. Don't be like looking around with your binoculars to see who can we call down thunder and lightning on. You know, that is not the attitude that you want to live with. Unless the time is right. All right, I talked about these nine techniques that Nehemiah utilized. Things that benefited him. And I realized that Almost all of these have to be utilized only some of the time. For example, saying no. I'm not going to say no to everything. A lot of times you need to say yes. He focused on his work, and he wouldn't come down, but sometimes you do need to come down and divert yourself from your work. He persisted in the work. Sometimes you need to take a break. Uh, he persisted on the same course in spite of criticism. Sometimes you need to listen to criticism and change your course. He gave a good, strong denial to his enemies, but sometimes what you need to do is keep your mouth shut. He had an accurate perception of the situation. Well, that one's always good. It's not always possible. He prayed for strength. That one's always good. Sometimes your prayers need to be in a different direction. In all of these things, be led by the Holy Spirit so that you'll know when to say no, when to persist, when to stay the course, when to focus, or how to focus. He certainly utilized the power of prayer, and that is something that is underutilized for us, and it's always beneficial. I actually had an interesting conversation with a sales call a month or two ago. The guy called, and we started chatting. He was towards the end of his shift, wasn't going to make another call, and uh, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll chat with these people. We started talking about the Lord. <laughs> Some people hang up on him right away, and... Uh, I'm like, uh, you love the Lord Jesus? Because uh, if not, a curse be upon you. No, no, no. In this case, we started talking about the Lord, and, and he started telling me about how the Lord had really come through for him in a big way. He said that he got caught up with some of the wrong people, and although he wasn't directly guilty of what they were guilty of, he was guilty of the foolishness of uh, palling around with these guys so that when they were busted, he was busted. He didn't tell me what it was. And I'm wondering if maybe they were guilty of something you know, more serious than drug dealing. And, and then when they were all uh, caught, you know, he was implicated as a part of the gang. And he was in prison. He was about to find out the next morning. Actually, he had been, uh, he had been denied. How did it go? S something like he had been found guilty, and there was an appeal, and the appeal had been denied, and he was going to get his sentencing, and he was about to find out like if it was going to be 20 years in prison. He was freaking out. And he knew of the Lord from when he was younger. And his, the guy's name was John, J-O-N. Last name Newman, okay, so it's out there now. He had a job in the prison of sweeping the floors. Everybody had a job. So he was sweeping, and it was like, one in the morning before he was finished. I don't know why. 
I can't explain the whole story. He went and he put the broom in the broom closet and he just closed the door and he got down on his knees and he said, God, please get me out of this. And if you get me out of this, I'll never do this kind of thing again. And then, now this, in this case, he had enemies of the, it was like the, the government of Florida because it was his own fault. So the story doesn't totally map onto to our lives. But he had a, a special need and a special prayer. He went to bed. They woke him up at 5 in the morning. A female guard in a male prison. That's stupid. She woke him up and she said, hey, are you John Newman? He said, yeah. And she said, get up and get your stuff. You're getting out of here. Now that story kind of inspired me to get on my knees in a broom closet. <laughs> you know, when you come down to it, you call on God. And God answers prayers of his people. I love it. I love it. The power of prayer. Chuck Swindoll said, you're never more successful than when you're on your knees in prayer. Can I get an amen? So these, these tests come, these challenges, these, this oppression. Uh, I, you could call it a test of fear. God allows these things. And they even work into his best plan for your life. In fact, I would even say... In your future, you will be accosted with a test of fear. Because in God's best benevolent plan, benevolent plan, He's going to bring you into a situation where you can exercise faith. You will have opportunities for bravery, maybe great bravery. So get ready. God sovereignly brings these things into our lives to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. In our nation, we don't encounter physical threats very often because we believe in Jesus. In other nations, as you've probably heard, but some people haven't heard, I found out, there are very intense persecutions that are accompanied by violence of every sort. Long imprisonments, tortures. I'll read you this story. Pastor Han was known for helping anyone who crossed into China from North Korea. He would help in practical ways like food or clothing. And he would introduce each person to the gospel. Then he would send them back to share Christ inside North Korea and help their families. Since planting his church in 1993, Pastor Han had helped orphans, sex-trafficked women, soldiers, and the famine starved, among others. In February 2016, the North Korean government issued an order for Pastor Han, age 49, to be kidnapped, brought to North Korea, and interrogated. Despite his awareness of this threat, Pastor Han continued his work. It was in Chiang Mai, China. China. On Saturday, April 30th, in Chiang Mai, Pastor Han was brutally murdered. He was unrecognizable. If I'm not mistaken, he was doing a great work. And the seeds that this man planted will grow even more. Those seeds being watered by his own blood, poured out on the ground. Earlier I said about Nehemiah's enemies, I said, what can they do really? And this brings me to a quote from Jesus, who taught, saying, do not fear those who kill the body. That's hard for me. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
We need to fear God more so that we fear people less. Sometimes I think that an excellent measure of our godliness is how well we stand up in the face of oppression, danger, and discomfort. When we're bearing testimony and we're facing severe suffering, will we maintain our testimony? In the early church, they had a time when the Roman government went berserk. There were good times and bad times. and there was, there was mild oppression and then there was crazy oppression. There was an edict at one point given that people had to offer incense to the false god and then they would obtain a little booklet, like a, sort of like a passport, and after they had offered the incense, they were given the booklet, they could carry the, they carry the booklet on them. It got to the point where people were stopped by Roman soldiers, they were asked to produce their, their booklet, and then if they didn't have it, they were arrested. There were a lot of Christians around. The pagans didn't care. They offered incense to this, that, and every, every other god. The Christians, by and large, did not. There were some Christians who refused completely to lose their testimony. And then when they were brought in, they, they started to endure terrible mistreatment at the hands of their captors, and they maintained their testimony. There was this one lady, her name was fittingly Perpetua, and then there was like a 15-year-old kid, and they were in the, you know, in the arena, and, and she was saying, come on, keep your testimony, don't give in, because they had seen other Christians who gave up their testimony in Jesus. They were real Christians, I think. But they said, enough, enough. I don't believe in Jesus. Don't kill me. There were some people who were tortured and their bodies were maimed and then they got to the point where they couldn't take it anymore. And they said, okay, okay, I give in. Give me the incense. And then they were released. And then they walked with a limp back to their town where there were other Christians who weren't living there anymore because they were dead. And they were living in the same churches. And they tried to rejoin the churches. Some of these people who had given up their testimony for Jesus. They tried to go back into the church. And they said, hey, we really do believe in Jesus. It was just so bad that we had to give in. Meanwhile, there was someone in the church whose uncle or father or brother, or sister, had been taken into custody, endured the torture, all the way to the end. And then, into the fellowship meal, because they had those, I promise you, into the fellowship meal comes the guy that gave up his testimony. It was a real crisis of leadership for the early church. And they had to figure out how to deal with it. And there was, then, there, then that was kind of the, one of the earliest uh, schisms of the church. You know, they had the first uh, Baptist church and the second Baptist church because some people said, we will never let these people in who gave up their testimony. And then some churches said, you know, we will. We understand. We all sin in many ways even when we're not facing as much torture as they are. So we need to forgive these brothers and recognize that they really are brothers. And then these other people said, well, what about the Bible verse that says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. So we deny them. So there were, basically it was one of those things where there were good people on both sides. Will you maintain your testimony when you come up against the crazy, berserk persecution? Or will you ever, will you ever face that? I don't know. I love what Jesus said. Do not fear those who kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Be more respectful of the Lord your God than you are caring about the comfort of your own body. Amen. I can't remember what I said. Be more respectful of the Lord your God than you have a care for the well-being of your own body.
A couple of times in this book, Nehemiah has said, the good hand of my God was upon me. That's a great statement. He knew that. You know? Not only did he know that he was doing a great work, he knew that God was behind it, and that's why it was a great work. It was God's work. And let that be true in our lives. It's God's work that we're doing. So Nehemiah knew that God would accomplish the job. Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai knew. Esther didn't want to do it, what Mordecai was putting her up to. Mordecai said, hey, deliverance for the Jews will come some other way. But who knows whether you are here for such a time as this. Mordecai and Nehemiah and many other great leaders in the past knew that God would accomplish the job. It's God's work, really. And, but God uses human agents, especially those who are willing to persist and focus and stay the course and pray. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let the joy of the Lord empower you for every work that you do. He loves you deeply and dearly. Jesus gave everything so that you could be cleansed of your sins, welcomed into heaven forever. And he's with you always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. When you're in the prison, rejoice. Always. I want to turn that story of Pastor Han and put it into terms of Jesus. Jesus was known for helping anyone who crossed into Israel from the Gentile nations. He would help in practical ways. He would offer encouragement. He would share the message of the kingdom. He would introduce people to the gospel. He would preach the good word. He would train his disciples and he would send them out to share the message all around. He, since then, has helped orphans, sex trafficked women, soldiers, and the famine starved, among others. At one point near the end of his earthly life, the Roman government issued an order for Jesus, age 33, to be kidnapped, brought into the praetorium, and interrogated. On more than one occasion, these attempts failed, but finally, he was arrested. Despite the threats, he had continued his work in Judah, even traveling to Jerusalem into the teeth of the Roman government. On a certain day, Jesus was brutally murdered. He was doing a great work. And the seeds he planted will now grow even more. Not only being watered by his blood poured out, the people will be cleansed by his blood poured out. The Bible teaches that that is precisely why Jesus died. There was no vindication of the Father's glory that was necessary apart from the work that he was accomplishing in obedience to the Father, laying down his life for the cleansing of the church. He was willing. He did not fear those who could kill the body. He respected the Lord, his Father, and he obeyed, and he went all the way to the end. He endured. He was faithful all the way to the end so that he could give his life as a ransom for yours. Jesus gave his life so that your sins could be cleansed, so that you would not be held guilty. How blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not count against him. If you're blessed, you're happy. What a blessing it is that your sins will not be counted against you. But you have to have faith. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe that he died for you. You have to believe that he rose from the grave. And he did vindicate God's glory. He did vindicate his own ministry. 
You have to believe. You have to repent. And you have to trust. He gave us this bread. He gave us the cup. He gave His disciples bread and wine. He broke the bread in front of them, which is symbolic of His broken body. And He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he had them eat the bread. And the church started doing the same thing. He held up the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which means a new agreement. A new deal between God and man. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now he has us doing it every week. Remember him. Remember his body. Remember his blood. And celebrate him, the ultimate leader of God's people. The ultimate one who stayed the course. Who said no to every other option. And said yes to the great work of the cross. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, you know it's so much easier to say these things than it is to live them out. But let it be, Lord, that now that we've said these things, now that I've said these things and everyone has said amen, that when we face temptations to turn away from the right course, temptations to sin in different ways, that we will persevere, that we'll take some of these lessons, just simply praying, saying, God, strengthen my hands. Simply saying no, or delivering a, a fighting back accusation. Lord, help us to put these things into practice, especially prayer. And if you uh, ever design to give us a knowledge of what our enemies are up to, we will welcome that and we ask for it now. But Lord, help us to be so brave that even if they're saying, hey, they're coming to kill you, they're coming to kill you at night, you need to run away. That instead we'll stay the course and do the work. Lord, help us to know the difference. Help us to be led by your Spirit so that we know maybe when it is time to run away or when it's time to stay. There were times when Paul was ushered out of the city, and then there were times when he went back into the city. There were times when Jesus escaped their grasp, and then there were times, there was the time when he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And they all fell back. And then he goaded them on to arrest him because it was time. Lord, help us to know the difference. Help us to look especially to the ultimate hero, Jesus. Our champion, our redeemer, our leader, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd of this church. The ultimate one who sends people on mission. That we will give you our full attention that we will fear God only, that we will not worry about enemies. We'll just focus on your work. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, God, for salvation through him. Thank you that our sins will not be counted against us because we believe. Thank you, Lord, for this bread and this cup You've got us always remembering Jesus. It's good. And we say that we need it. We need this. We need your blessing upon us in our remembrance. Lord, help us to really understand. We turn away from the sins of the past. We've spent enough time in the dissipation and waste 
So we turn away from all that. We don't love that. We love you because you loved us first. We understand that we can't be good enough to be forgiven. Forgiveness is not about being good so that it doesn't count anymore. Forgiveness is about the person that you've done wrong to not holding it against you. And we recognize the only reason you don't hold our sins against us is because of Jesus Christ and you've given us the grace. You've covered our sins. You've covered our shame. So thank you, Lord. We want to continue to celebrate you, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a believer in Jesus, please come. Thank you for listening to audio from Veritas Church located in Magnolia, Texas. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Veritas Church, please visit veritasdisciple.org.